welcome into another episode of Automatic. And this is a different type of episode, Steffi, and I'm really excited about this. How many times do you get to have a Hall of Fame coach? Andy Landers is going to be joining us. And just knowing that this is going to be a four-part series with Coach Landers, just talking about various things from building a program, the discipline that's needed uh, in, you know, obviously recruiting and players, coaching philosophy, and even just looking at, you know, what separates good players from great players and just the general landscape of college athletics. So, Steffi, I'm excited about having Coach Landers on this episode and the subsequent episodes as well, because we're going to learn a lot from Coach Landers. Yeah, I mean, it's not every day you get access you know, that like we're going to have on this four part series. And I think that anybody that listens, you know, will learn something. They'll be entertained, they'll learn something, and they'll enjoy some insight. Because I think as, as far as we've come as a society and um, all the things that we have in front of us with social media, sometimes what gets lost is where we started. And it's nice to reflect back. It's, it's humbling to listen to. It's like, wow, what? what really happened and how did you do that? So um, I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, Coach Landers, you know, one of the best people in the business. So can't wait. Can't wait. I agree with you. But before we get to Coach Landers, let's talk about this past week, because I think what we're seeing right now, Steffi, is at least on the men's side, there's not one dominant team. I mean, we just saw Gonzaga take the number one spot and could it be Auburn that should be in the number one spot after Baylor loses two games back to back? And who would have ever thought that Baylor would lose? I get it to maybe Texas Tech, but to lose to Oklahoma State, nobody, I think, would have seen that coming. And how well Auburn is playing right now, I think they're probably the best team in the country, even though Gonzaga is number one, but Auburn got the most number one votes. But when you totaled all of the votes combined, Gonzaga still slipped up there just to hold on to that number one spot. But at the end of the day, Steffi, there's no clear-cut favorite. And yeah. I think we're going to see all this shakeup just continue throughout the season. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw Auburn play the other day, and Jabari Smith is a specimen to watch. Hello. Like, yes. just, just dripping, oozing NBA draft pick, right? Like, just the way he <laughs> uh, plays. Number the, one. Number one. Um I, uh, I, there's a certain style and speed and pace with which Auburn plays with that you can't deny is puts them, like, makes them Final Four contender. You mentioned that Oklahoma State game. It wasn't like the Baylor that I'm used to seeing. It's kind of like we've seen the ebbs and flows of the season, and Purdue being up there, and Gonzaga, UCLA. UCLA goes down. So who do you like out of the ACC? What, what stood out to you? Yeah, that's where I'm still struggling with the ACC. On paper, it's got to be Duke. I mean, it just really does. I mean, when you look at, again, the star power that they have with Paulo Bancaro, when you've got Trevor Kills, you've got Mark Williams, who is becoming a dominant player in the post. And, you know, obviously you have Coach K as, as well. So, I mean, they've got the recipe, but you just don't know what's going to happen. And there's some surprise teams, obviously, in the ACC in terms of Miami, how they're playing. But Duke is still the clear-cut favorite because they just seem to have so much superior talent than everybody else. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to what se that's going to be what separates them 
from anybody else in the ACC. So I think they're the clear-cut favorite in the ACC, even though right now the record might not show it. I, would, I wouldn't argue with that. I, I also think the team that we didn't talk about on the men's side is Kentucky. And, uh, you know, a lot Watch of out. attention being focused on Auburn, rightfully so. But Kentucky, the way that Oscar Oshibwe, the way that he rebounds the ball, I mean, woo, saw his uh, 94 feet with Jay Billis. Jay Billis was cleaning the glass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's <laughs> Kentucky is, is another contender. I think they're a team to watch. Yeah, what they did to Tennessee. Now, remember, this is a good Tennessee team, but to blow them out the way they did and score over 100 points, I mean, Kentucky is definitely going to be that team that can contend in the SEC. So, in my opinion, it's going to come down to Kentucky and Auburn now. Now that you started to see both teams play and star-studded rosters for both of those teams, and you talk about Baylor, I think one of the surprises – And this is where injuries can start creeping in, and you never know how it might affect the chemistry of a team. Because Jeremy Sohan, he didn't play in those two games. He had an ankle injury, and I know people can say, yeah, but he's a bench player. He's coming off the bench. Well, he started one game, but he's played in every game so far, averaging eight points and almost six rebounds per game. So he gives a lift off the bench, and sometimes it's just those little things. As you know, Steph, yeah, you mess up with the chemistry of a rotation yeah. of a team, and some things can go off for particular games. You know, something that I just learned the other day is with a lot of the protocols and players, we're seeing you know more games obviously being played, less being canceled. It's more individual players not being able to participate due to safety protocols or whatever. So you have a player like that who um, was injured. So then that affects practice. That affects rotation in practice. How, who's my next person up? So then the chemistry is just a little bit off. Um, I did a game last night where a player who's a starter didn't hasn't practiced because of safety and protocols for the entire month of January. And her very first practice was before the LSU game, and it was a shoot-around. So her first real live reps was versus LSU, who's a top-10 team. So that's like behind the scenes that a lot of people don't even realize um, with some of these players that come back, how long that they've been out. She was just in contract tracing. She came out of it, then she went back in. So, you know, I think a lot of coaches everywhere are just trying to manage availability and then rosters and then rotations and then chemistry. And I think some of that, um, you know, due to injury, obviously with Baylor, but just around the country when you're like, whoa, how did they lose? Then you kind of start to look at a little bit of the fine points and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. And, and I think it is wide open on the men's side. I think it's outside of South Carolina on the women's side, it's pretty wide open. U- UConn is not no longer a top 10 team. A lot of people saw that nationally. <laughs> a lot of yeah. people saw that nationally when they uh, got spanked by UConn, or excuse me, by Oregon. And I think, you know, since Mulkey left at Baylor, the Big 12 is, is wide open. Texas has lost. Baylor has lost. I think Iowa State um, is a real contender. Ashley Jones, if, if anyone wants to watch someone fun, Ashley Jones on Iowa State, Rich, you, if she's ever on, you know, one of the marquee channels, if they put Iowa State on, you got to tune in. You know, she's, I'll definitely check she's that a WNBA out. player. Yeah, she can score it anywhere. Um, How far is the separation between South Carolina and everybody else? Like if, if you had to pick 
the field or South Carolina? Who are you choosing? That's so hard, Rich. That's so hard because it, they don't have to be the best team in that final game. They might be the best team this whole season, but that last game, they've shown a lot of vulnerabilities, but like they can win anyway. And that is, she has so much depth. She, she's got a 10, basically a 10 player rotation if she wanted to, too deep at every position. It's something like you see on like for football. You don't necessarily yes. see that, you know, on, on basketball. <laughs> on a basketball roster, being able to go too deep at every every spot. But I think NC State and Louisville are, are certainly contenders in the ACC. I think they're the favorites. And Tennessee is a team, too. I mean, they're undefeated in league play. And uh, they play, I think, February 20th against South Carolina. That will show field South Carolina. I'm not ready okay. to put, put it all on. I, I, I think they're the best team. But I, what we've seen in the last few years of the NCAA tournament, especially on the women's side, is holy moly, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's fun, and it's, it's crazy to come on here and say that UConn is not a top-10 team. I mean, did we say that before the season? I mean, but Paige Becker's going down completely. Look at the value of that player. God, how much she meant and did for her team. Yeah, can you – do you think then that it really is pinpointed just on her, or is there more deficiencies on UConn? We just didn't see them until Paige went down. It's a good question. I think it's a twofold answer because they have had to battle injuries. There's been some departures. I want to say two players have already transferred, which is pretty unheard of. And I think so much hype was coming in on UConn and AZ Fudd, Paige's best friend the number one player in the country. She suits up. They've got a loaded roster. And then Paige goes down. It's like, I just feel like they haven't recovered. They got a lot in the, the, into the COVID protocols and all that. They, they hadn't played a lot, Rich. But then just the other day, I'm looking at the score. I'm like, what am I looking at? <laughs> <laughs> what is, you know, it, it's not like they're bad. It's, they're not bad. But use the value of uh, a special player like Paige Beckers is she just made everyone around her better and probably covered up some weaknesses. They just have not been able to maybe regain an identity without her when you have the number one player in the country that goes down unexpectedly. Yeah, and that can definitely happen to some teams, and it does seem to be from that perspective. Now, shifting to teams of the week, my team on the men's side, it's the Oregon Ducks. They're quacking right now, yeah. winning five games in a row, yeah. three of those on the road. They just beat then number three UCLA in overtime and then followed that up, beating then number five USC. So what a great way for Oregon to somewhat get off of this slide because we saw earlier preseason that we thought they were going to be really good. They blew out to SMU by 23, but then they lose by 31 to BYU. They lose to St. Mary's. They lose to Houston. They even lose to Stanford and Arizona State. And you're asking, what in the hell is going on with Oregon and Dana Altman? But then somehow they go on this five-game win streak right now, and they're playing some really good basketball, and Dana Altman gets his 700th career win when they beat UCLA in overtime. And so I just think they're playing some really good basketball right now and just showing again that, hey, the Pac-12, it's not all just UCLA or Southern Cal. Oregon still, they're still there. 
Well, I guess we're going to double dip because my team of the week is the Oregon Ducks on the women's side. Let's go. They've had a tough start. I mean, we talk about injuries and trying to get through that. I mean, Kelly Graves has tried to navigate the best he could with limited rosters at the time, but they beat Arizona in overtime, then they beat UConn. I think they'll be back in the top 25. You know, Sabali is that, I don't know her exact height, Rich, off the top of my head. She's got to be 6'5 or taller. Sisters have come through there. Super talented. Uh, Sedona Prince as well, 6'7". So much talent on Oregon's roster. And That's finally they've been, oh man, yeah. And the speed with which they play with, you know, obviously hurt UConn, but I think that finally that they're getting healthy. Totally different team. And I love like the fact that we picked two teams that got into some altercations because I love a little drama as long as I'm not <laughs> yes, in it. Yes, you do. <laughs> as long as I'm not in it, I'm okay with it. And uh, uh, there was an altercation between Adia Barnes and Kelly Graves during their game. I believe she was spoke up after the game and was fined for talking about the officiating and how uh, it was unf- you know she said her whole thing. But her and Kelly Graves were going back and forth. And uh, I don't know whose side I'm on because I don't know what was said. There's nothing to you know photograph it or document it. Players were speaking up to support Adia Barnes. Kelly Graves, to my knowledge, is a good dude. Said it was all in good spirit. We're competitive. But I did hear that uh, middle finger was shot up at Kelly Graves from Adia Barnes. <laughs> Think about it. It's competition. It. If you're it's there, I'd be like, hell yeah. <laughs> hey, it's all competition. It's in the spirit of the game. At least that's what Adia Barnes was saying. And she did apologize that she let her emotions get the best of her. Uh, and so at least she did own up to that and apologize. And then, as you mentioned, even on the men's side for Oregon, they had a little bit of drama in that UCLA game with Mick Cronin, the head coach. He was not too happy that they played the game without any fans. And, and we do know that fans can have an impact on, obviously, the energy and the game no and all of that. And there is that aspect. Was he speaking of the frustration of the fact that they don't get to play in front of fans, but there's 80,000 people in the Rams stadium. Yes, that's, I think... Does he have a valid point? He does. It's the double standard. It's like, how is that possible that those games can be attended, but this game cannot? Because he, to his point, I mean, he's right that fans can have an impact on the game, and we love that about the energy of a packed arena and the excitement and all of that. And so he's got to be very frustrated, not necessarily that he's blaming the loss on no fans, but just the double standard and the craziness that we have right now where it's based on local municipalities, you know, local governing rules, dictating things where it, how is it different when you're just a, you know, several miles down the road or an hour down the road. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I can see it being like, kind of like a blame, but I, I thought he spoke some truth and pointed out some hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Um, I know that every time I get on a Zoom call with coaches, they want us there. They want us in the arena. Coaches and players, they're, they're excited as just as a broadcaster, just being at the arena. They missed having cameras. They missed fans. I mean... Every arena I've been at that I've got to travel to, we've got great crowds. And, and uh, I think there was a, a, a viral clip of a little girl. I think her name was 
Zoe that waved to Aaliyah Boston at the South Carolina game. You know, there's 10 to 15,000 people there. They worship those players. And the little girl sees Aaliyah Boston and she says, hi, Aaliyah. And she waves by and the, the clip went viral. And South Carolina, you know, they put out a video saying, hey, back to her. That's, that's why they're there. I mean, that's what we missed as people who cover the game and people that play it, the players, being able to touch young little kids like that in that way. Um, it was awesome. If you haven't seen it, Rich, I'll send it to you. It's a big part of the game, the fan experience, and I did see that. And right? Wasn't it so as cute? As a father of a daughter and That's seeing right. her get emotional because Aaliyah just waved to her and said hello based on, I mean, she responded to the little girls trying to get her attention. And just that moment, I mean, she'll remember that. For the rest of her life, that's going to be on her personal hard drive forever. And you never know what that little moment, the impact that it can have for that little girl in terms of could that be something that could give her the motivation, the positive affirmation to be a strong woman growing up? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching. Maybe I'm being cliche, no. whatever it is. But I'm telling you, I've seen things like that have such a huge impact on people. So, of course, we need fans in the arenas. And I get it. Obviously, want to be safe, but I think we can be safe and have fans in the arena. That's just my opinion. We can. We can. And it was an awesome moment. And uh, just having been in Columbia and watching little kids come up to them and shoot around. Good luck out there today, Zaya. And, you know, Zaya will acknowledge. And it's, I mean, they're the number one team in the country, so there's going to be a certain amount of uh, following with that, but definitely special when you see the uh, impact that players have on little young kids. I have a different perspective now with all my nieces and nephews, but it leads me to my automatic rich of the week, which is Aaliyah Boston will get another double-double. I know that that sounds silly considering she's lead, leading the uh, campaign for National Player of the Year. You'd think that that would, with Asia Wilson coming through the ranks, that she'd have all the records. No. When Aaliyah got her ninth, Double-double in a row. That hadn't been done since the 70s. That's so every incredible. one that she's had since then is historic for that program. It's amazing how she gets double-doubles so fast, though. She I got mean, it in the first quarter of the game, I was <laughs> Yeah, there first you go. That's, yeah, that's what's incredible. I mean, that's insane. And again, it's not like she's getting double-doubles that are 11 points, 10 rebounds. It's... 20 points, 19 rebounds. It's those type of double-doubles, which it, it's so impressive. So I would have to say, though, that's an easy automatic, though. I don't know, because teams that's are, gonna happen teams are all vying the time. for her. Teams are vying for her. It's not, an, it's, it's not easy. I watched her. It's not easy. Yeah, but she's just so good. It's a safe right? bet. Okay, it's a, it's safe, a bet. safe bet. Okay, maybe, maybe <laughs> that's a better way to phrase it. Safe, safe bet. bet. All right, so for my automatic, which I do think is a safe bet now, and I've got to contradict myself from earlier in our podcast where I said that Alabama is going to win the SEC. Well, Steffi, that ain't happening. That's the automatic. I'm sorry. Alabama is You're just giving not up. Going You're throwing in the towel. I am. And I know it's it's probably early that we still got plenty of time. It's We're recording here on a Tuesday, January 18th, and we could say that maybe Alabama is going to make a run, but the problem is they don't play defense. 
And I don't think I equated just the loss of Herb Jones so big in terms of their defense ability, just even collectively as a team. And so I'm unfortunately jumping off the Alabama bandwagon in terms of... It's hard not to like Nate Oates, you know? Exactly. It's hard not to rally around him. He's got well, and especially how you saw how he played non-conference, beating Gonzaga and playing well against Houston, you know, all that. And then you start seeing the deficiencies, though, when you start getting into conference play. And that's what we're seeing a lot of teams as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why we really have uh, jumped, jumped onto the Auburn and Kentucky bus. Are we switching? We're switching. Yes, we are switching. A little yes. orange and blue. I knew I could get it out of you. Yeah, okay. I know, right? There we That's go. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Different orange and blue, but we'll take it. Different orange and blue. <laughs> yes, that's right. All right, so it is time now. We have got to jump into our conversation with Hall of Fame coach Andy Landers, and you know him from his days, long tenure at the University of Georgia, multiple Final Fours, so many different All-Americans. And so we're very excited to have Coach Landers join us here on Automatic. Now we'll be joined by my good friend, uh, former colleague, and uh, I don't know, my everything. I, I This is one of my favorite people I didn't think I would say that a few years ago. Was a rival. He goes by the name of Andy Landers, and he's joining the podcast today. We're going to do a four-part series with with uh, Coach Landers, kind of breaking down the landscape of coaching, players, um, you name it, he'll touch on it. Um, and today's episode is going to focus on building a program from scratch. And so we're joined by Coach Landers today, and everyone thinks about him and the University of Georgia. But he actually started his career at Roan State Community College. And he spent four seasons there. He had three 21 seasons, but then at 26 years old, found himself as the head coach for the University of Georgia. Coach Landers, how did that happen? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I, it was even interesting how, how you become a head coach right out of of college with no coaching experience at Rome State Community College, which uh, is is what happened. Uh, you know, naivety is what led me to Georgia, to be honest with you. I, I was naive. You know, I'd experienced some success. We go to Rome State in a nutshell. They were they were they were really bad. It was a it was a new community college. Uh, no tradition whatsoever. The first year we played the entire year with seven players. We go 13 and nine, but the next three years we were really, really good. We go from that to 23 and two, 24 and four, and 25 and five. And we kind of took over uh, the Tennessee junior college system in terms of, of who the best team was. And prior to that, Cleveland State, Hawassi, had played for national championships from that league. So it was a great league. In fact, you know, when I was there, uh, believe it or not, we played 34 games against four-year schools as a junior college. And we won 33 of those games. The only reason we lost the one game was a guy named Wayne Norfleet uh, had had his his center bait my center, who was a hothead, and my, my center co-cocked his center and got kicked out of the game. Otherwise, we'd have won all 34 games. <laughs> but 
Well, you know, it, it was it, it was really a, a great time, and and what happened as as you would imagine, all of a sudden we're ranked second in the country, third in the country, fourth in the country. I mean, we were really good. You know, attendance just blew up. We filled the the gym that we played in at Rome State. So I get to thinking, Steph, you know, that I'm pretty good at this. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm really good yeah. at this. You know, I'm big time. That's what I started thinking. I'm thinking I'm big time. <laughs> you wouldn't have thought so. But, but, but I, I'm thinking I'm big time. So I started thinking of, and, and looking around, you know, and I'm, I'm from Tennessee originally. Pat was at Tennessee. And incidentally, we scrimmaged University of Tennessee twice a year. The last three years I was at Rome State. Now. Here's the part that you won't believe. My last year, this is how good we were. My last year, we scrimmage them a week before the season started at our place. Then we would scrimmage them at Christmas uh, during the Christmas vacation because everybody had like a three-week vacation. Nobody, you know, they didn't play games in December for some reason back then. But anyway, we scrimmage them. We beat them 61-60. They finished the season ranked number one in the country. Wow. Yeah, so it, it so all of a sudden I'm really good, right? I mean, I'm the next big thing, Steph. I mean, I you know, it, it, you're young, you're naive, and I start looking around. I go, well, Pat's not going anywhere. Love be at the University of Tennessee, but Pat's not going anywhere. And and Kentucky, because of Kentucky men's basketball, that that just seemed untouchable to me because of the the great reputation of Kentucky men's basketball. And then I started thinking, you know, Georgia has great high school girls basketball. Georgia would be a good spot. So I, st- I start tracking Georgia. Well, they have an opening. I apply for the job. The AD calls me and asks me, the women's AD calls me, Liz Murphy, and asks me if I want to come down and interview for a job. And I asked her some questions. She said, well, you'll be teaching PE department, and you'll, you'll have to teach this many classes, and da 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 I said, whoa, 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 no, I don't want, want to do that. I said, I don't teach classes here. After my first year at Rome State, they allowed me, they made an admissions counselor out of me, which I don't even know what that is. Uh, <laughs> then I got to go around high schools and recruit kids. Yeah. Uh, and most of them were basketball players. But anyway, uh, you know, she says, well, she, she said, why? And I said, because I have a better job at Rome State than you have at Georgia. And she said, well, would you, I'll never forget this. She said, well, would you come down here and tell our committee that? I said, no. I said, no. I said, but I tell you what. I said, I'm going to keep an eye on George. I said, because whoever you hire, this is, I can remember this clear as day. These, this is the conversation we had. I said, but whoever you hire is going to be hard up for a job or doesn't understand what you have to do to develop a winning program at the University of Georgia. I said, so it's going to open again. I said, maybe it'll be different next time. And we hung up. That was the conversation. So now I'm curious about Georgia because I believe what I said. Whoever takes his job is either hard up for a job or they don't understand. Well, this is going into my fourth year now. And I remember, and we're really good. I mean, we're lights out good. Uh, we, Anyway, we're, we're, I remember reading in the Knoxville paper one day at lunch uh, that players at Georgia boycotted a game. And then a couple of weeks later, I read in the paper where the coach at Georgia boycotted a game and the trainer even boycotted a game. I go, well, they got problems. You know, I was dead on with this. You know, I, I, I'm better than I thought I was, you know. <laughs> so, 
so, so I'm going, this, this, this is, so I'm kind of tracking them from that point on, but we're really good. We could win the national championship. The year before we got beat in double overtime by one by East Mississippi, who lost the national cha- or who won the national championship game in double overtime by one. Okay. So you can kind of see how close we were and we're better this year. So we're playing a regional tournament and we're hosting it. And we blow through the Memphis team, which was absolutely out of sight. Had two player, two guards on there, big timers. One goes to Mississippi State named Boatwright. Look her up if you don't believe me. They only had two years there, but she scored a lot of points. And and we beat them. Then we we get to the finals and we're playing another Mississippi school. I'll never forget it. There was a kid on the on the block named Susie Fudge. She wasn't but about five feet, 10 inches tall, but she might have been about four feet wide. And we couldn't guard her. You know, I had these slender athletes that couldn't get around her, you know, and she clipped us and we get beat in the regional championship game. So now we're not going to the national tournament. I go up to my office. I'm fiddling around. I'm going to go quick. I go, I go up to my office. I'm fiddling around doing what I'm supposed to do after a game, which was everything, call in the scores, write the news release, the whole nine yards. And so I, I did all that, and I'm sitting there. I'm going, you know, I'm going to Athens, Georgia. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. I go by my place. I pick up some clothes, throw them in the car, and I start driving to a place I've never been in my life. I drive all night long. I come to Winder, Georgia. I see a sign that says Athens, 23 miles. I said, I'm about there. I pull over to this little roadside motel. I go in. I go to bed. I get up the next morning. I walk across the street to McDonald's. I pick up the Atlanta paper. You know, McDonald's used to have the morning papers in there. I'm eating, and I'm going through the sports page, and there's a four-by-four section in there, a little little article that says University of Georgia to hire first full-time women's basketball coach. Whoa. I'm going, are you believe this? I'm 23 miles from there. So I get in the car, I roll in. I, I Nobody knows I'm coming. I walk in, secretary's office. I said, hey, I said, is Liz Murphy? But she's in a meeting. She said, yeah, I have to wait a few minutes. I said, okay. She said, can I tell her who's here? I said, yeah, Andy Lamb. So a few minutes goes by, I go in and I, I sit down and start talking to Liz Murphy the AD, and that she's the same person I talked to a year before that asked me to tell the, the committee, no, I ain't doing that. I said, so now we're sitting there talking, and this is crazy stuff. She's from Tennessee. She went to Maryville College. I'm from Maryville, Tennessee. She did her student teaching at Porter Elementary School. My brother is the principal now at Porter Elementary School. So we got all this stuff. So we, we talked through it. And she says, look, she said, I can't promise you you're going to get the job. She said, but I will promise you this. You'll get an interview. I said, okay. So like two, three months go by. It was crazy. You know, I'm just sitting, waiting, waiting. Meantime, I apply for Auburn. I think I'm going to get the Auburn job interview. Couldn't have gone any better. Little did I know the AD, women's AD at Auburn, had come from West Point, had the same back, back similar background with, with Joe Champy that that I'm developing with Liz Murphy, right? So she hires she hires Joe. I thought I was gonna get the job. You know, thank goodness I didn't. You know, because they finally called, they're gonna interview 10 people. She says she wants me to come in and be the first interview. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I said I won't be the last. She said, You sure? I said, Yeah. So I go in, do the interview. There's like 12 people there because they've had issues. The program's messed up. You know, they've had all these boycotts and they, they got like 12 people on the committee and and we, we get to the end of it. This is when Coach Dooley 
was in an in in a year between being just the head football coach and the athletic director. It's his hire. It's his first hire. We get to enter in the end of the interview, and he says, uh, "Hey, what are you doing?" rest of the day. I said, whatever you want me to do. He said, we're going to go have lunch and meet. He said, can you hang around? I said, yeah, because I'm going to get the job. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up at Georgia. Wow. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there, Coach Landers. <laughs> Just so can much you believe that? to unpack. In, the car in the middle of the night. and started I know. And the next day it's in the newspaper. I mean, I'm the first person knocking on the door the next day. It's crazy. I'm 26 it years is old. Crazy. I four years of junior college. You know, I, I'm not even sure I can spell Georgia, but I'm the head coach. So then you take the job. You're in your mid-20s. What are some of yeah. your first thoughts or actions <laughs> on how the hell do I do this? Yeah, because this is a messed up program, right? <laughs> this, is, this is nuts. So I, so I grew up in East Tennessee. And Ray Mears was the coach of the men's program at the University of Tennessee. Ray Mears, trust me, trust me when I tell you this. Ray Mears had what most programs have today in 1970. What am I talking about? All the bells and whistles. Dressing room, out of sight. Meeting room. Orange chairs, one white chair with a star on it. That's where the captain sat. All the stools, the cubicles in the dressing room. I mean, it was out of sight. So I'm thinking that's the way it is at major colleges, right? Well, they, they, they called Ray Mears the Barnum of basketball. Okay. Because he was, he was out there. He was so far ahead of his time. Orange phones in 1970. You know, I mean, that, so. It was it. so. I'm thinking that's the way it is everywhere because that's all I've kind of been around, and and you know I'd, I'd befriended their assistant coach at Tennessee. In fact, I drove Ray Mears around to speaking engagements my last year at Georgia. So I, I would, I'd seen all this. I said, "Well, I can't, I can't wait to get Georgia." So you know, I take the job, and two weeks later, I'm rolling up Lumpkin Street right in front of the Coliseum. And I remember looking out my window and going, "Boy." Are you in over your head? <laughs> I mean, you could have taken Roan State's campus and set it in one of those buildings. <laughs> oh, man. And, and here I am. But I'm excited, you know, and I want to see, you know, all right, so how do we get this thing started? Well, I get there, you know, I, I, boom, I want to see dressing room. Well, you, you don't have a dressing room. What? So, well, there's a dressing room down there to use. I said, well, we got to have a dressing room. Assistant AD says, well, I'll take you down there and show it to you, facilities guy. And he opens the door. Y'all, I about passed out. I about passed out. You know, I had done at Roan State what Mears had done at Tennessee. I built it with my own hands, okay? So I walk into this dressing room, four-inch square beige tile on the floor, beige PE lockers, metal lockers, benches, two by eights on steel spindles bolted to the floor. Okay. You guys, you guys didn't even see this in the OPE gyms that you went to high school in, but this is, this, this was it. I'm going, Oh my God. 
what have I done? So I'm thinking, all right, you know, I I I can I've been here before. I can do this. So I, t- I tell the guy, I said, hey, take me in football dressing room. I want to see what theirs looks like. Walk in. It was the same. Exact same. I have four of those metal lockers out of the football dressing room in my in my barn right now. I mean, they're classics. So I go, okay, I, I'll fix it. So I was working. I, I was. I've been a workaholic all my life, and I, so I would work every night till whenever. But during this time, I would kind of knock off at like eleven o'clock, and I, I'd go downstairs. I bought paint. I went downstairs and I started painting every other locker, red and black, red and black. This is what I'm going to go with. You know, I got to make it look right. You know, I painted the walls. I painted signage on the walls. You know, I, you know, I, I painted the SEC circular pit with all the little pennants on it, all that. I mean, it looked great. I mean, if I'm going to brag, I, I could get that. I could do that stuff. I mean, it looked, so I'm going, all right, but I'm doing this 11 o'clock at night. And so if I get through with it, I go up and get the guy that took me down and showed me the dressing room to start with. I said, look, I got something I got to show you. I figured this is the day I'm going to get fired, right? Because <laughs> I didn't ask anybody for permission. And everybody <laughs> else's locker looks like crap. So we walk in and he goes, oh, my God. He said, this is great, man. He said, I, I know some people in Dalton. You know, that's the carpet capital of the world. He said, I'm going to get you some red carpet put in here on floor. And he said, I'm going to get you a big mirror to put on that wall over those sinks. You know, he goes crazy. He loved it. Swear to you, three weeks later, football dressing room, red, black, red, black, red, black. Painted all the lockers. Put the carpet on the floor. I had the stools, the whole nine. So we got that done. Now, next thing, hey, Steph, you'll get a kick out of this. So I said, one day, I'm, I'm, I kind of called up. And I was kind of bored. I said, hey, where are our uniforms? I need to look at our uniforms. So they, they show me these uniforms. Oh, my God. How bad? They, they were about that long. I mean, they were about a foot long. I mean, they, they, they were awful, and they were old, and they... Numbers peeling off of them. I said, okay, good. I left. Well, one day that nobody is around, I went in there and got them. And I took them out and threw them in the dumpster. And then one another day, I go in there and I said, hey, look. I said, I, I need to get uniforms out and get sizes. Can you, can you get somebody to get uniforms out? They said, yeah. But we can't find them. I said, what? They're gone. I said, you're kidding me. I said, what are we going to do? So we're going to have to order new ones. I said, okay. <laughs> Well played. <laughs> and I had a hookup. I had a guy in Knoxville. I had a guy in Knoxville that was a sports belt. Did you ever wear a sports belt by any chance? They did Florida's uniforms. They did everybody in the country at one time basketball until Nike took it over. Sports belt was big. Well, I knew the guy. He was giving me my uniforms at Rome State. So he he sent me uniforms, boom, 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 boom. Got all that straightened out. So, you know, just stuff like that had to be taken care of on the front end. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna look like crap. It doesn't matter how good we are, we're gonna look bad. And we're not gonna get anybody to come come play and dress in that place that they showed me to start with. Just a lot of little things had to be done. Yeah, and coach, what about just even in terms of any players that were holdover? from the previous coach and your first interaction with them and what you had to do to (laughs) even get them to stay on board. You you ask a question like you know the story. So 
remember, we're really, really good. And a couple of my junior college players came with me. Bernadette Locke, who became Rick Patino's assistant at Kentucky, Bernadette Maddox. Uh, she was she was an all-star. She was an all-American. I mean, she was really, really good. She came with me. Denise Dunlap, Teresa Duncan came with me. But when I got the job, it was so late in May, end of May, that you know all the recruits had already signed. And I remember calling Kim Mulkey, Lee Henry. Hey, everybody's already signed, you know. So I'm I I don't have very anywhere to go with it. But and and as as is the case most places, they're telling me, oh, we got good players, we got good players. You know, we we should be competing with Tennessee. That's exactly what they told me. We should be competing with Tennessee. We got good players. We I said, okay, okay, okay. So. I'm nonstop recruiting. I'm nonstop everything. The players are dropping by the office one at a time, visiting, you know, and I'm going, okay, okay. You know, because I, I knew they didn't have good I mean, and it didn't really matter to me because they boycotted. They boycotted. They got a coach fired in one year. And I'm thinking, hell, if they got one fired in a year, they could get me fired in six months. Mm-hmm. So I got to be careful <laughs> with this because, because, they had they had a voice. They had a voice, which isn't a bad thing if it's positive. But they they understood that if they complained, something might happen. And that really concerned me. So I, I wasn't in a hurry to watch them or evaluate them. And I guess a month went by. And finally, one day I said, hey, look, one of them popped by the office. I said, hey, look, get everybody together. Mark two o'clock down, down at Stegman at the bottom of the hill. There's an old wreck building that's tore down now. But anyway. And and let's play. I said, I want to see y'all play. That's the day I thought I made a big mistake. What did you see? I go in, I go in there and watch them play. I promise you, my JUCO team would have beaten on 110 to 40. I said, oh, my God. We got it. So, fall rolls around. I said, everybody, everybody's got to try out. And I never four or five kids on scholarship. Remember, what was happening then was nobody had 15 scholarships or 10 scholarships. You know, they were just, they were building it. So most programs had like five scholarships and they would split them up. And then, you know, it started with three and then it'd go to five and then it'd go to seven. And finally it got to 10. But I said, everybody's got to try it out. So everybody tried it out. I cut everybody but one. Why I kept the one kid, I have no idea. Other than there was something about her. I said, she's a solid gold kid. She's just a solid gold kid. You know, she wasn't a good player. She's just a solid gold. Diane Stone. I said, I'm going to keep her. So I kept one kid, cut the rest of them. And then they, you know what happens next, don't you, Steph? The phone starts ringing. AD comes in. The women's AD comes in and says, hey, so-and-so's mother called. You know, she don't understand why she got cut. I said, Liz, I said, I'm going to cut you a deal. I said, do you want to handle women's basketball problems? She said, no. She And she was a wonderful human being who did not like confrontation, hated it, you know, very uncomfortable with it. I said, I'll make you a deal. I said, as long as I'm coach here, I said, you'll never have to deal with our problem. I said, if anybody calls you, I don't care who it is, player, parent, whoever. I said, if they call you and want to want to complain about something, I said, here's your answer. Have you talked to Coach Landers? I said, if they haven't talked to me, you tell them I'm the basketball coach. They need to talk to me. She said, you got a deal. I never got another phone call. So much 
that you've shared, right? So you take over the program, you get the locker room up and running, right? So got a official looking locker room that you painted, you basically built, got some new carpet in there. You threw out the jerseys, players, we've got jerseys now. You finally look at your team, you cut everyone but one. You're building this Georgia program literally from scratch. No one will ever have to do that, right? This is just your story. So what is... What's going through your head at the next juncture of, okay, now you're setting up a direct line between players, parents to you, right? So that's the next thing. So take me through the next obstacle or what else it took to set the foundation for your program. Well, Georgia, here's what you have to understand. When I came to University of Georgia, Valdosta State and Mercer were both ranked in the top 20. Georgia had never beaten either one of them. Georgia had never beaten Georgia Southern. Georgia had never beaten Georgia State. Georgia had never beaten anybody. You know, they won five games a year before. So the, when, it, when it came to, to the pieces that related directly to building a program, those other things are kind of superficial, if you will. But my, my number, I, I remember having a goal, and that was the number one goal we had to become the best program in the state of Georgia. And the, the second goal was I wanted to be a top 10 program, not team, program. So obviously we had to recruit. And, and that, that, that it, it's, I'm not sure people can understand, but what Valdosta State, Lyndall Worth was the coach at Valdosta State. And they were, first time we played them, they beat us 120 to 60. Then they, at the end of that year, they beat us 97-94, I think, and it might have even been overtime. And then they never beat us again. Same thing with Mercer. Drilled us twice, and then they I'm not sure they ever beat us again. I don't think, no, they didn't ever beat us again. But anyway, the obviously the, the piece that, that, that has to happen anywhere, regardless of the state of the program, is you have to recruit. Now, in these days, in the late 70s, what they were doing around the country was they were sending letters out to the high schools in the state going, hey, we're going to have tryouts on Saturday from 10 to 12. We'll post the winners. We have three scholarships available. We'll post the winners of scholarship at 1230. And so kids would drive in and they'd play for a couple of hours and they'd give them a scholarship. Well. Having, having been around the men's side, I knew better than that. You know, you got to recruit. So I recruited. So I decided I got to get in my car. When school starts in the fall, I got to get in my car. And I did this. I got in my car. I went up to Dalton. I started up there. I went down the, the western side of the state, down through LaGrange, all the way down that side, the Bainbridge and Moultrie, and went across to Tifton and then worked my way through Savannah back up there. I was gone all week. And, and footnote, I had a $3,500 recruiting budget. <laughs> so I get back, and the first person I see is the athletic director, women's athletic director, Liz Murphy, walking straight toward me. She says, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? You ready for this? This is class. This is word for word, guys. She said, we got a problem. I said, what's the problem? She said, Linda Worth called. I said, yeah, okay. I said, what she want? She said, you were cheating. I said, oh, me. I said, what'd she say I was doing? She said, 
that you'd been out visiting high school. I said, Liz, that's right. I said, all week long. I said, I was going in five, six different high schools a day. I said, you know what that's called? She said, what? I said, that's called recruiting. And it's not illegal. She said, okay. (laughs) Is that crazy? It's bizarre, Coach. But that's what the bizarre game was. I mean, you look at our early recruiting classes. We saw, yeah, we we jump out there. My second year, we signed a player a year out of Mississippi, player a year out of Tennessee, player a year out of Pennsylvania. Uh, third year, we signed the national player a year out of Chicago. Because I'm getting it. I am going. I am calling. I am working the phones. And these, these other people are still posting up signs. We're going to have tryouts on Saturday. <laughs> the game has definitely changed. Not it's only crazy. how it's played, but obviously how recruiting <laughs> occurred as well. But Coach Landers, so thinking back to all of those days, and then as you fast forward to, you know, as you ended your career, and then even as a broadcaster, you're seeing it from a different vantage point and how the game is today. What are some of those key principles, though, that you feel that regardless of time that you have to have, especially in recruiting, attracting the players, building that culture? What are some of those foundational principles as we're wrapping up? Well, I, I love that word. I, I love culture. I think that's what it's all about. I, I think you have to build that positive culture. You, and, and moreover, you have to recruit. We passed on as many great players as we signed. People find that hard to believe. I, I, you know, even late in my career, my assistant sent me to Texas once. Hey, we've got number one point guard in the country. She's chomping at the bit. She wants to come to Georgia, man. I go down there and watch her play. I come like, no, not going to work. I visited a kid in Michigan, uh, I think was a fifth-ranked player in the country. Uh, you know, she calls her mother stupid twice in the, in the home visit. We get up. I had two assistants with me. We get up, we get in the car, we're driving back to Detroit Airport. Nobody says a word for like, you normally get in the car and you go, oh, how'd that go? Man, that thing went good. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody talking at the same time. Nobody said a word. Finally, Bernadette was in the back seat. She leaned up and said, Coach, she said, what do you think? I said, Bernadette, I said, she's your kid. I said, you know her better than I do. I said, but you call your mom stupid twice in an hour. I said, I'm not sure about I said, but I'm going to go with whatever you say. I said, I'm going to go with it. She said, okay. Hey, funny end of the story. She, she, about a month later, she calls me one night. I'm at home. She says, hey, coach, she's, what did you ever decide about blank, this kid from Michigan? I said, uh, I didn't decide. I said, remember, I said, I left it over you. She said, well, you better decide. She's going to call you in about 20 minutes and commit. I said, I said, thanks for the heads up, but back to the culture piece, back to the culture piece. She called. I said, hey, listen, I said, I've been thinking about this a lot. I said, I feel like we've gotten to know you a lot, real well. I said, I just kind of believe you'd be better off somewhere else. I said, you've got lots of good choices. I said, I know you're going to make a good one. I said, but. I just, I, I think you would be happy somewhere else. Uh, and she went to another, I guess you could say the top program in the conference, our conference. But two years later, she transferred. 
so I was right. So you got to, you know, it, it's a lot. But I, I think when, you, when you're building that program, the culture piece, you got to recruit the right people. You, you, you know, and when I say the right people, the right people that you want to coach, the kind of people that you want to coach that you can relate to, that can relate to you as well and make that all work because uh when when you recruit at the highest level you you tend to run into some personalities which is good i mean that that's why they were the national player of the year or they were the number 1 or number 5 player in the country they got a little stick about them and and you you, you have to sort through those kinds of things and make sure that what they have is going to work in, in what you're doing. And that's something that I, I think that, as I said a minute ago, we, we did a really good job with that. We walked away from a lot of really talented kids that I thought would be better off somewhere else. And we would be better off as well. Rich, I can't help but listen to Coach Landers reminisce on his story of how to build a program. And I think about um, all the social media tactics by coaches, the texting, the private planes, the unlimited budgets and different shoes every different day and just how far athletics have come. I mean, truly, it's a I think it's important to, yes. to share some of this with athletes and coaches who listen to us because we take for granted so many things now that are just at our disposal. I mean. Landers goes in his car on a whim down to Athens. He doesn't have ways, okay? He doesn't have MapQuest. He just goes. He does. It's called Rand McNally. I had the book. That's right. <laughs> just, just come a long ways, and I think that, you know, Coach, I, we really appreciate you coming on, and we're, we're going to have more of these insightful stories because it's important now to just reflect back on how far we've come the game and just what it takes, what it took to, to get to as many Final Fours as you did and coach as many All-Americans as you did. And starting with that black and red locker room paint, man, that's something. That's my... That's what started. That's what started. That's awesome. We had the best dressing room in the country. <laughs> Love it. Coach Landers, we can't thank you enough for the first part in this four-part series and so we're going to have you on again and you better come with even better stories <laughs> oh he's got them <laughs> they're out there they're out there <laughs> all right Steffi I don't even know where to begin that first Part of this four-part series with Coach Landers, just absolutely phenomenal. Again, just hearing the genesis, you forget that back in the day, it was a little different and it was all hands on deck. I mean, these coaches that were building these programs, I mean, they were doing it from bare bones, from nothing. And it's just amazing what they've been able to accomplish. Well, the work ethic and, you know, I think most importantly, my takeaway from Coach Landers is the vision. He clearly took the job because he had a vision in mind. And you don't go and do all the steps that he did and he talked about and, and how clearly he remembers them if you didn't have a vision and just how far that took him. And so I, I just love taking in all of the stories from Coach Landers. He's got so many and they're always 
um, impactful and I feel like it's important to talk about some of this stuff when some everyday things, how easy it is for a coach to get a hold of a recruit now. Well, it wasn't that case. It wasn't like that, <laughs> you know? So it's sometimes it's good to pause and, and reflect on, wow, look how far our game has come. Yes. And obviously coach Landers has been one of those individuals. You could label him as a pioneer for the women's game and all what he has meant. And obviously not just for the university of Georgia, but for women's college basketball as well. All right, we were going to continue that series with Coach Landers in upcoming episodes as well. But that is it for this episode with Steffi and I. And as always, if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and let us know your thoughts by rating and reviewing. And as always, we appreciate your time investing to listen. And this is Automatic.